The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Young Adult, the new Jason Reitman movie starring Charlize Theron. Joining me from the Slate DC office is Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hi, Dana. So every time I've, I've done a spoiler with you in the last few years, I've had to ask, are you writing for The Voice now? Are you doing things for The Post? Are you freelancing? Are you at New York Mag? And now I can finally say Slate senior editor Dan Coyce. I'm really psyched. You guys finally just swept me off my feet. You belonged here all the time. And now we've got you here, which means, among other things, that I can spoil a lot more movies with you. So I'm really excited. And actually, by rights, you should be hosting this spoiler podcast because you're reviewing Young Adult, not me. That's true. Uh, so this I'm... is a Slate spoiler special for young adults. <laughs> yeah, take it from the top. <laughs> so let's talk about Young Adult. Um, oh, we forgot to mention Reitman... also, we forgot to mention that it's written by Diablo Cody, which is every bit as much the brand name above the title as Jason Reitman and Charlize Theron, I would say. Yeah, so I was just about to say that, you know, it's a Jason Reitman movie, but I think in the long run, what we're all more likely to think of it as is the, the Diablo Cody movie where she comes to terms with being Diablo Cody. How, how so? And is that a well, good thing? Well, it's uh, you know, it's she's given a lot of interviews already in which she talks about how it's sort of a lot of aspects of the story are particularly personal to her. This notion of um, of going off from her small town, ending up somewhere else, achieving some level of success uh, that's essentially inconceivable to the people she grew up with um, and then sort of trying to cope with that in her relations with the, the people she grew up with. And I, I, I hope that Mavis Gary, the character that Charlize Theron plays, is a um, horrible version of Diablo Cody and not an actual documentary of Diablo Cody. But I do think there's a lot in this movie about of Diablo trying to figure out what it means to have grown beyond where she grew up and the person she was in high school. So Mavis Gary, this stand-in for Diablo Cody in the movie, is not a screenwriter, but a young adult novelist, hence the title. She actually writes under a, um, a pseudonym, we find out, halfway through. She's a ghostwriter for a popular, sort of a Sweet Valley High-type popular syndicated girl series. Um, so that's the, the modest level of success that she's found. She lives in Minneapolis, and she finds herself one day going back to her own hometown. What is it exactly that sparks her voyage back to her hometown? I mean, we, we see her in various states of dissolution. She's lying around with her toy Pomeranian drunk in her apartment a lot of the time. But what was the specific... Oh, right. She gets an email from... Yeah. She gets a birth announcement from right. um, the wife of her high school flame, Buddy and Beth, the Slades, who still live in her old hometown of Mercury, Minnesota. And Mavis is included on their birth, their emailed birth announcement, which has an adorable picture of their child, which she views as an affront in that she has always viewed Buddy um, as the, the man she was meant for, and somehow it didn't work out, and somehow Beth got him and she didn't. But that they that he would send her this announcement she views as essentially a not only an affront to what she did not get, but a call for help from Buddy because she believes him to be trapped in his marriage, trapped in parenthood, trapped in Mercury, trapped without her. And she sets out back to Mercury to rescue him. Right. And at this point, it's pretty early on in the movie, I would say, that we realize that we're dealing with an unreliable narrator, right? I mean, not only because we sort of see that she's living a really lonely and, and messed up life and is really behind on her work de- deadlines and is really just barely keeping it together. But shortly after she arrives in Mercury, Minnesota, her hometown, we start to realize that we must be dealing with an unreliable narrator because, in fact, the the Buddy Slade character, Patrick Wilson, seems pretty happy in his home life. Right. And he responds to Mavis exactly the way almost anyone would respond to an old flame showing up, which is he feels it's nice to see her and he is wondering what she's up to, uh, which is, I mean, which is a good piece of acting on the part of Patrick Wilson because, I mean, Mavis does look like Charlize Theron, as screwed up as she may be. She still 
looks like that. This is but, something that's handled pretty well in the movie, I think. I don't really love this movie, and I don't love the way that character comes together, but I have to say that Charlize Theron's looks are handled really well in this movie. I mean, the fact that she's this gorgeous South African supermodel, you know, playing this fairly ordinary but slightly special for her environment kind of person is very well played as is the fact that she's this kind of aging beauty I mean she still looks fantastic but that she's still kind of working it high school style when she goes back to her hometown and I thought the costuming and makeup details and the way that that's shown was really nicely done Right. Well, and it's important, I think, that you say she's working it like she did in high school, because in the end, that's sort of what the whole movie comes down to, is her being stuck in essentially the land that she writes about, the land of high school romance, the land of first kisses and blowjobs out in the woods, though I guess she probably doesn't write about that in her books. But to her, that's it seems like that world has never ended, and she still believes herself to in many ways be that person and for everyone else to be those people too. And so when people have obviously changed, it throws her for a loop. She doesn't understand how Buddy can no longer be crazy about her, why he doesn't drink the same shitty apple cider that he drank when he was in high school, why he doesn't still wear his letter jacket. And she also can't understand why the other main character in the movie, Matt Freehoff, who's played by Pat Oswalt, she doesn't really understand how he could have turned into something other than the screw-up that he was that she totally ignored in high school and only belatedly in the movie does she realize he's turned into something totally different. Um, He's been transformed not only by horrible experiences that happened to him in high school, but by the life he's lived since then. Yeah, to me, let's talk about the Patton Oswalt character because I think that could have been the moment that this movie started to come alive for me. I think all the performances are really great, but this movie, to me, never did come alive. And that little summary that you just made of the theme was about as deep as the theme ever went for me. And um, the Patton Oswalt character, I think, is the place that that could have been explored more and never really was. So, So Matt, this guy that she doesn't remember from high school, but he does remember her when he sees her in a, in a they bar. They have in lockers hometown. next to each other. And she because no of alphabetical idea. order, probably, right? Their names right, are, right. are G and F. So they were right next to each other for all the, those four years, but she doesn't remember him at all. And he now is semi-crippled, walks with a cane because of an incident that happened to him in high school, which I also thought was sort of brushed off and and glossed over to some extent. But he was beaten by a bunch of jocks in the woods because they thought he was gay, which turned out not to even be the case. So then he didn't even sort of get the glory of being the victim of a hate crime. Yeah. So they they, I mean, they shattered his ribs and they broke his legs and they beat on his penis, I guess, with a bat or a bar or something. And so, I mean, he's obviously he's physically crippled in very substantial ways, but he's also the real truth teller in this movie. I mean, one of the things that I really liked about that character, and I think that I disagreed with you a little bit on it, is that the movie did come alive for me with Pat Oswalt's character. And for me, it did because he was the one character in the movie who would look Mavis straight in the face and say, you are mentally ill. I mean, he actually says, you are fucking mentally ill at one point in this movie, which is, I think, in the end, what is actually happening. I mean, I think that to have a character like that who actually sees through people, for me, made the movie a lot more interesting and brought the themes of the movie to life in a way that that just the interactions between Mavis and Buddy, which were just sort of intensely uncomfortable, could not. Really? So, so all the stuff with the, with the ex-boyfriend and her delusion about the fact that they, would, they were destined to get back together did not work for you? I mean, it worked okay, but it, but it also seemed to me to be – I thought you couldn't make that the basis of a movie without it 
some point owning up to the fact that it's essentially psychopathic. You right. Know? So he's and the so Greek that, chorus. He's the Greek chorus there speaking the truth in the movie Patton Oswalt is. Right. But and so I then mean, didn't guess, you feel you're forcing my hand now to get to to get to the end and spoil something major, which is that she and, and Matt Friedhoff, is that his name? The, the Patton Oswalt character yeah. get together and have this night of sort of arguably sort of pity sex or something toward the end of the movie, which I thought reflected really badly on her character. I actually really hated her at that moment. And then I think way too easily the movie wants to let her off the hook and have her grow up and and learn and grow as she as she's driving out of town. I mean, essentially, you know, after she has this awful blowout with um with Buddy Slade and his wife, I don't know. You couldn't even really call it a blowout. It's just sort of a mortification horror show at that their she child's goes christening ceremony in front of hundreds of people in their front yard. Right. So uh, so she's she's off. drunk at the christening ceremony, makes a complete fool of herself, and uh, and actually is treated very graciously by these people that she's abusing, but is essentially told, you know, we just invited you because we felt sorry for you because everybody knows that your life is falling apart. And she shambles away in, in, in total mortification, winds up at Patton Oswalt's house, and the two of them end up sleeping together. And that would have been a fine plot development for me if there was there was any other beat with him but we never really see him again after that happened or, or how he feels about it or what his reaction is going to be when she up and, and drives out of town and in fact there's even a detail that repeats an image from the beginning of the movie right at the beginning of the movie we see Mavis having a one night stand with some guy she cares nothing about she wakes up and she's kind of trapped under his arm and she uncomfortably moves the sleeping arm off her body and then gets up and packs a suitcase and leaves and that's the moment she leaves for her hometown and that's exactly what's echoed again at the end with Patton Oswalt and yet the message is not oh this is just cyclical depressing the same thing happen again but it's it's some sort of a breakthrough for her character I don't know I, oh, I found that I don't that... think it's a breakthrough at all I mean I, I think that but you don't, don't, you don't think the movie has a been... happy ending wants us to think it has a happy ending no i don't i mean i think they could have made the movie that way and it could have been written that way but it's not i mean because what happens after she has that encounter with matt which could have been something redemptive for her which incidentally i would like to say in a lot of ways it's pity sex on her behalf towards him but in a lot of ways he's also offering pity sex to her oh yeah it's pity sex both ways i would agree yeah i mean but uh, but then after that you're right that we never see matt again because instead we get this amazing scene between mavis and matt's sister sandra who's played by um, colette wolf who's an actress who you've seen a lot of little parts here and there um in which she at the moment the exact moment that mavis might be seeing into herself she says to colette I'm crazy. And she realizes what a horrible thing that she's done. But then Sandra, Matt's sister, says, no, you're amazing. You have the most amazing life. Everyone wishes they could be you. You have it great. You're my hero. I wish I could look like you and be like you. And then Mavis says, you know what? You're right. And then she drives out of town. And that's the end of the movie. And I don't. I mean, I don't think we're meant to believe she's been redeemed at all. I think we are meant to believe that she had a chance at redemption, but then because of Sandra or just because of her own problems, she bypassed it entirely and she's going, going to go back essentially to being the person she was. I completely disagree. I don't think the movie wants us to believe that. I mean, I wish that I could believe that the movie had the courage of its convictions in that way and that it showed us an awful person who tried to become better and couldn't and then just went on being awful. But look at this. I mean, the thing, the thing that she's writing, right? The voiceover, which is her finishing her last story for the teen series. Right. Isn't it, isn't it all this kind of, I mean, is it just meant to be ironic counterpoint? Because it's this whole inspirational thing about 
you know, she was ready for her new life to begin. About the, you know, the hero of the the heroine of the the high school novels striking out on her own on graduation day. I just felt like that was supposed to be an obvious echo of of Mavis's growth. Also, she starts being nice to her dog. I mean, come on, why would you start being nice to your dog if you haven't grown and changed as a character in a in a romantic comedy? She was always nicer to her dog than she was to anyone else. But she kind of treated the dog like crap through the movie too, which was this ongoing sort of heartbreak that the dog was abandoned in the hotel room for me. Like, take your dog for a walk. The dog whose name is Dolce. I just did, I just don't think there's any reason you include that scene with Sandra with a sister unless you are wanting to give the message that she in the end hasn't learned at all because what I mean because the end of that scene is Mavis saying you know what you're right I'm going back to Minneapolis and Sandra goes please take me with you and Mavis just shoots her down like an absolute fucking asshole yeah Mavis is a complete complete jerk to her in that scene but I'm just not I'm, sure if the movie if the movie knows or cares that much about that I felt like. What was happening in that scene, what Diablo Cody wanted us to think was happening in that scene is that she felt somewhat sorry for the for the sister, the credulous sister who believed her life was great when, in fact, it was terrible. But then she realized that she had everything that, that she needed to make a good life, essentially that she had been feeling sorry for herself and that she wasn't making the most of, of her own opportunities. I mean, I, it, it's, a, it's a corny ending, but I think that's the one that was intended. Uh, wow. Well, I, I hope someone asked Jason Ryman because I couldn't disagree with you more. So, um, but I mean, I do think it points to a a sort of tonal incoherence on the part of the movie, which is definitely there, whether you sort of like it as I do or were sort of didn't like it as you did. I mean, it's true that the movie is all over the place. And it stems in some ways, I think, from what seems to me to be a real uneasiness in the screenplay with how – Diablo Cody feels about this character and about her feelings about what she's done. And and I guess by extension, Diablo Cody feels about her own character and her feelings about what she's done. You know, there's this – it's a weird inconsistency between feeling as though – the way Mavis feels as though she has made it in the world. And she's a success and she has moved beyond, flown far past what any of these morons in – in Mercury could have ever done, while at the same time also feeling like to be a success, she has to prove herself to those specific people. She has to go back and get the guy she didn't get. She has to make herself believe that the person she was in high school really was as superior as she always thought she was. And so it's a, it lends itself to a real inconsistency in the movie as a whole, which makes me not that surprised that we could totally disagree on what the ending means. Yeah, and now I, I want to poll people coming out of that movie and say that the friend that I saw it with completely agreed. She thought that, that it was not supposed to be an ironic counterpoint, that the, the end of the novel that she's writing that we hear in voiceover at the end, and that that was supposed to parallel what was happening in her own life, which gave us both this icky, queasy kind of feeling of, but what about Patton Oswalt? And, you know, what about all the people that she hurt and left behind? Not to mention her alcoholism, which she herself at one point says to her parents, and they think she's joking, right? Because she, everything she says is this kind of deadpan, sardonic, Cody line, but this moment that she says to her own parents back in her hometown, oh, I'm an alcoholic now, and they both kind of laugh and, and laugh it off. But, I mean, if it is true that her drinking habits are what we see in this movie, then that's another big problem that's not solved. So the movie doesn't earn its happy ending, if indeed it's trying to have one. Right. I just think that all the arguments against it earning its happy ending are, in fact, arguments that it doesn't that it has the blackest ending imaginable. Basically. Wow. But so overall, you're, you, you like this movie. You're going to recommend it to people. I don't know if like is the right word, but I respect this movie for being as sort of bitter and dark and cruel as I think it actually is. Right. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you're reviewing it then because you're going to bring something to it that I'm sure I wouldn't. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, thanks a lot for coming in to talk to me and uh, go get writing on your young adult review. Thanks, Dana. 
Our producer is Chris Wade. Our editor is Andy Bowers this week. And our executive producer every week is Andy Bowers. And Dan, take it away. For Slate.com, I'm Dan Coyce.